Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferentz.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 75. Fun interview today, I sat down with producer and mixer Brent Hendrich, and we talked about his experiences being a freelancer for 20 years. We also get into the Nashville home studio scene, working on music you enjoy, learning to hold yourself accountable, working in Cubase, file prep, and a few mix tips as well. Before all of that, I wanted to talk a bit about using your taste to define your career, something that we've touched on a bit in various episodes in the past. So a lot of podcasts, music or not, talk about the importance of niching down and finding the clients that you're passionate about working with. Now, albeit true, that idea is becoming so over-talked about that it's basically become easy to ignore. It's like when you put a post-it note on your bathroom mirror to remind you to do something. Eventually, it just blends into its surroundings and you don't even notice it anymore. So what isn't brought up as much is what you need to do before you write niche down on a post-it note and slap it to your mirror. First, you've got to develop your own taste. You have to learn what you're good at, what you enjoy, and what excites you. Then you have to lean into that and trust it. If you're tapped into that, then I think you'll find that niching down and narrowing your client base happens pretty naturally. So when I say develop your taste, what I mean is you've got to do a bunch of stuff and discover what's unique to you. A lot of us have idols or mentors in this industry that we want to be like. We want to have their career. But ultimately, that'll never happen. Max Martin's path is only Max Martin's path. Rick Rubin's path is only Rick Rubin's path. Jason Joshua's path is only Jason Joshua's path. Insert whatever name you want. Every successful person in this industry has had their own unique journey that has led them to where they are today. It's what defines their sound, aka their taste. Every person's unique experiences and influences shape how they will hear and create music. Now you might think, well, if I get a job working for one of these greats, then I can have their career path. But no, that still won't work. Sure, that person will be one influence on you, but you'll still have your individual influences from your childhood, your own favorite records, and your own sonic and musical preferences. All of those things will blend together to shape your sound. Now, remember that an important part of this is doing copycat work. That's part of the journey. It's how most of us start. Remember, most of us learned how to play other songs on instruments or recreated beats from tracks we love, or tried to recreate a synth sound or guitar tone. Maybe you've had access to a multi-track from a classic song, and you've tried to recreate that mix. All of those experiences shape how you relate to music. They introduce you to techniques and ideas, and it's how you put all of those together that will create your taste. Doing all of those things is part of the process of discovering your own musical self. You can't niche down if you don't understand who you are musically first. And this also extends past actual music work. What works for someone else's social media or marketing campaigns won't work for yours. 
you still need to follow that same process of learning to discover what connects with your audience or client base. So to wrap this one up, this all comes down to the core value of this podcast, defining your own success. You can't try to live someone else's path. That's been done already. And the key ingredient to defining your own career and your own success is developing your own taste, your own sound, your own style, call it whatever you want. But you've got to find the thing that is most you and you've got to lean into it. Today's guest is Nashville-based mixer Brent Hendrich. In Brent's 20 years of experience, he's logged countless hours of studio time, worked on a Dove award-winning record, and contributed to multiple Emmy award-winning compositions. So, going to be a fun one today. Welcome to the show, Brent Hendrich. Brent, how's it going? Hey, Travis. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. I, uh, I was just messaging with Ben Wallach. He said hi from Secret Sonics. Oh, yeah. Hi, Ben. Hope you're listening. You better listen. I'm listening to his show. He's got to <laughs> listen to mine. <laughs> I'll try not to uh, cover some of the same things that I covered in that podcast. I always have this overlap with so many of his guests because he has so many great guests on. And I'm like, I want to talk to that person, but I got to wait like a couple months. Like we talked about doing this like three months ago and I was like, we got to wait until the dust settles on Secret Sonics. But so I'm excited to chat because uh, when I was starting out, I thought about going to Nashville and I kind of always wondered like what it was like to come up through Nashville. But I wanted to ask you before that, are you from Nashville originally? No, I'm from East Tennessee, actually, um, Northeast okay. Tennessee. So kind of up at the very tip of the state. Uh, it's about 300 miles, I think, from Nashville. So it's, it's a good four and a half, five hour drive. Okay, that's cool. But you've been there for most of your career then, I guess. Yeah, I moved to Nashville um, right out of high school. Basically, as soon as I possibly could get here, I was, I was ready to go. I knew at 15 or 16, I wanted to live in Nashville. And uh, so it was just waiting to get out of high school and graduate. And then, yeah, I was here in 2000, so... So uh, I have to ask everybody, like, what was your musical roots? Were you a player? Were you just the guy that recorded the band? Would, how, how did it all start for you to get on this path? Yeah, it started early. Music, you know, was something that I loved from a really early age. I had a, a really mean cassette collection. And uh, <laughs> my parents were cool with, you know, buying me lots of music. And uh, I grew up in the church. And so there was a lot of music there. My dad was a, a music director. My mom played piano. And... Uh, you know, so I think just my love for music really started, you know, just maybe four or five, six years old. And then I also really got into tinkering as well. My dad was a, a pilot and um, oh, or cool. a flight instructor, actually. So he was always a tinkerer and was an engineer in a way. He liked to fix things that were broken and just a sharp guy. And so I think that's kind of where the engineering side of things came from. And so those two together kind of, I think, was where that love first started for me. And so, yeah, I mean, really, I guess I got my first guitar. That's kind of where I started with as far as instrumentation goes. And that was, you know, in my early teens. My grandmother got me a uh, an electric guitar, like with an amp, just a kind of a combo set up. And uh, from there, it was in bands and throughout high school. And then from there, it was kind of, uh, you know, just starting to record our own records. And so, yeah, it's kind of started at an early age, really, for me. That's cool. Do you remember what your first guitar pedal was? Man, first pedal. Um... You know, I went a while without a pedal. It was just kind of turning. Oh, no, I do remember what it was, and it was awful. It was so bad that I n will never forget it. It's a Zoom 505 is what it was called. It was like a square box, and it had two pedals, and it was so noisy, and it was all these, like, just cheap digital effects, and it was, yeah, it was it was awful. Oh, man, I, th I think mine was the uh, the orange boss distortion. Is it the DS1? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. never had a ton yeah, of boss pedals for some reason. I don't know why, because those are the classics. Well, they just, you know... They're everywhere. But uh, I don't know, it was a random thought. I was like, oh, my first pedal was this. I wonder what his pedal was. So <laughs> Something I haven't thought about in a while, yeah. Yeah, right? <laughs> I've actually just sold all my pedals because I wasn't even using them anymore. So uh, yeah, I have like zero pedals now. 
still get to play much or or is it just all mixing now? No, you know, I've I just don't have time for it really anymore. I mean, when I produce records, I would just hire people that were a lot better than me with way more gear and let them bring in their nice pedal boards and use all their stuff. So I have a few guitars and, uh, you know, I sold my amps and my pedals and, and all that and just trying to not really have to focus with that anymore. My playing, I mean, when you move to Nashville, you realize like everyone's just amazing guitarist and I had no desire to really be a session player or a performer or anything like that. So the only time I would play guitar would be on projects where I wanted to demo something or I felt like I could pull it off on the editing side of things and uh, do it myself. So, Yes, every engineer is an editor of their own yep. instrument, whatever it is. They're like, yeah, I kind of play keyboards and then I fix it up, it's fine. Yep. Yeah, I kind of play bass, I fix it up, it's fine. So when did you know that recording and production was the path for you? When did you pull the trigger on wanting to go to Nashville? Yeah, I mean, it was, like I said, it was probably 14 or 15 is, is when I started saving up and we had this just, I think it was like 550 megahertz Hewlett Packard computer uh, at our house. And I had it in my bedroom and I saved up from working a job at Chick-fil-A to buy this eight in and eight out interface. And yeah, connected that to the computer through some big, huge IDE kind of cable or something and, and had, yeah, Cakewalk Pro Audio 9 and the Waves Native Power Pack, which was like the very first few Waves plugins. It was like probably $500 for like just a C1 and a True Verb and the Q, whatever, one through 10 series. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I had that big, huge fat dongle. And so between that and Cakewalk, you know, it was like, I had like a, my first DAW in high school in my bedroom. And it was, it's pretty cool. I mean, for the late nineties, it was, there wasn't a lot out there. I think maybe around that time, the, uh, was it the Digi001 came out that was kind of, you know, really changed everything. But yeah, so I had that set up and, and our band had recorded our first album uh, and that's kind of when it really, like the bug hit me was we went to this small studio, they had a Pro Tools rig and just a little bit of mics and outboard gear. And, you know, we started, we, we made our record there and it was like, man, this is so cool to be able to, you know, record this stuff and then burn it on a CD and, and play it for my friends at school. And so after that is kind of when I got the rig uh, of my own. And then we were able to record our second record in my parents' house. Uh, I guess that would have probably been like a, maybe a junior in high school, something like that. Nice. Uh, and from there on, it was like, oh, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. I, I have no desire to be in front of people and performing and, you know, messing up possibly on stage. I, I want to, you know, be in the studio where we can just perfect things and make things sound amazing. And so that's that's where it all started for me. That's a, very similar to me. I, I When I started recording myself, I was like, oh my God, I'm not that good. But I wasn't <laughs> doing cakewalk. I got sucked in first by at a Sony Vio computer that came with Acid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I used acid. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I used Sony acid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah, I got sucked into like making those loops and then I, have, I still have a stack of those CDs, like those loop CDs yeah. somewhere. The, yeah, the Rex files or I forget what kind of files they stretch and yeah. Yep. So I made uh awful, like, I don't know, like it wasn't techno, but it was, you know, it was just loops on top of loops mm -hmm. and on top of loops and yeah. Make it sound good though. It was like, wow, you made that? Well, yeah, you're like, oh, kind of, yeah. <laughs> I imported these audio files into this sequencer, yeah, and they all kind of put the, in the same key, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's done for you, but uh, then yep. I, I, didn't, I didn't go like Pro Tools or Cakewalk or anything. I went to like a hard, one of those hard disk things. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. 16-track like Korg unit, and that's what I was using in like 2000. Okay. And it was uh, atrocious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of people had the, the role in the 8 and 16 track hard disk recorders. And that's what I 
thought I wanted. And then I, I think I went with the cakewalk thing because it was maybe cheaper and it was actually glad that I did because that's where we're at now. So it worked out well. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The DAW this is a hard, hard tangent, but I did a record a couple years ago on a Tascam hard disk recorder. Ooh. It was a strange like concept record where we bought everything from Guitar Center. Oh, okay. Made the record in a garage and then mm-hmm. returned everything within the return period. <laughs> and so buying a computer was out. So we were like, all right, so we need to capture it on something. So we had this uh, Tascam. Yeah, it was like a flashback. It was anyways a trip. Testament to the players on that one. Huh. I'm surprised they still make those. Well, we bought it. Yeah, that's <laughs> and true. And returned it promptly. But uh, yeah, it was, it was a weird record. Weird record. I'll throw a link in the show notes if anybody wants to hear a weird record. I do. I like weird records. <laughs> so you got to tell me about Nashville because here's my outsider perspective for something that didn't move there. So when I was leaving college, it was 2006. And I was thinking about going to Nashville because I was from North Carolina. And I was like, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Kind of like missing the South a little bit. Let's go. But I felt like my friends in LA were getting jobs and I felt like Nashville was a really, really tight community at that time. I don't know if it's still like that, but I felt like you had to intern for free and maybe you weren't going to get hired. It just seemed tight and tough at that time. Mm -hmm. And that's like, you went out there a little bit before then. Was it a really tight community like I thought or did did I just kind of miss the boat on that? You know, I don't really, I didn't really know what I was getting into. It was just, I wanted it so bad. I was going to just see what happened. And uh, there was one or two people that I'd met before moving to town. And that, I think, made it a little bit easier just knowing that I knew someone there. And I also moved with one of my best friends who was also in my band. And he was a there you go. recording nut as well. And so we kind of shared an apartment. That made that made it a lot easier. I think it would have been really tough on me if it was just, just myself. But I was just in small little bubbles, I guess, early on. I was doing school at SAE. They had just opened the school here in town. And so oh, cool. uh, there was some community there. And then, of course, just with the people that I knew, I'd hang out with them some. And I knew a few engineers that I'd met before coming to town. So they would let me sit in on some sessions. And everyone was really welcoming. Um, a lot of these people were in the, you know, the Christian music side of things and just really great people and were always down to let me kind of hang out. So, yeah, you know, I don't know if I came up. I didn't come up through the studio side of things. I came up more on the interning independent guys. Nice. So I did a few of those things after school, and and that's kind of the path that I took, just kind of being an engineer for some uh, you know composers and producers that needed some help on the projects that they were working on. So I've had a great experience with Nashville. This is my twenty second year, and uh, and I love it. It's actually just changed so much. The music scene has has grown and grown and grown, and I think oh, we get yeah. we're getting a lot more respect than we used to. It used to be just a country and Christian music town and, and the, the pop scene is great. There's so many great singer songwriters here. Yeah. It's just such a diverse group of people here in, in town. Uh, and everyone's just super welcoming. I really don't have many, many bad things to say about the Nashville music scene for sure. I, I, I love it here. There were times where I thought I needed to move to LA because of the music that I was listening to, most of it was coming out of LA, but I just stuck with Nashville and, and thankfully like the music that I like is somewhat coming here now. I don't know if, if some people coming from LA or people that are, you know, just, we have a lot of schools here like Belmont and MTSU. And, and, and I think that brings a lot of great talent uh, into town as well. And they kind of stick around. So yeah, music scene is, is really great and very welcoming uh, ever since I've been here. So yeah, I can't say anything bad about it. What are your thoughts? Like, since you did the kind of the working for individual composers or producers, Mm -hmm. and that's how you cut your teeth and like really got started did you ever feel like you missed out because you didn't go like work at Blackbird or Sound Emporium or any of those? Or 
Yeah, not really. I mean, you know, I don't even think Blackbird was was here back then. That's, that's how long ago it was. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the Sound Emporium definitely was. Um, you know, I think because I wanted to be more of a producer that engineers and mixes his projects as opposed to like the engineer path, which I think probably would have been more of the studio path. Yeah. For me, I wanted to actually be in these home studios with the people that were basically what I wanted to become, you know, and, and see what that world was like. So that, I think that made more sense for me. And it was actually, I have no regrets at all because I got to actually go behind the scenes and see how they're making these records. You know, as far as like the signal flow and really mastering like all the consoles in a studio, the setups and teardowns, I didn't get to do as much of that kind of stuff. But I was tuning vocals and still engineering, you know, uh, piano at, at a guy's home studio or cutting guitar somewhere, drum somewhere. So I was still, and I actually got to, I think, be more hands-on, whereas I guess when you come to the studio side of things, you... You're not really as involved in the project. You're just, I mean, I guess you are because you're helping set up and things like that, but you're kind of coming and going. You're not, you know, it's not like the producer's like, oh, hey, go tune this vocal for me now. I feel like, you know, the, the producer's going to be a bit more hands-on there. So working for uh, Brian and Pete, the two guys that I worked for out of school, it was, yeah, it was a great path for me at least because it was more of what I wanted to be doing. So Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's one of the things that I, you know, I had that big studio experience, but I never really had a lot of like mentor type working. I mean, I did work for one guy for a couple of years, but it was very much like, here's the tasks. You do the tasks. It wasn't like, a, I wouldn't really describe it as mentoring. No offense to him. Yeah. But we just had a very business-like relationship. I brought my studio, big studio mentality to it. Mm -hmm. He gave me the things to do. I crushed those things. I didn't ask him anything about his stuff that he did in his room. You know, I just did what he liked. So I regret that a little bit. And I always like... When you're the guy in the studio and you're like the runner, the setup, the assistant, I was always like wondering like when the producer brings his tuner in and he's like, hey, as soon as we're finished cutting this vocal, toss mm -hmm. it on a USB stick to that guy, let him. I was always like, oh man, what's that gig like? What's that guy yeah. doing? What's he learning? So uh, I think it's a cool spot and I think it's something that like a lot of people, especially now, should consider, especially in a place like Nashville where maybe what, 99% of homes have a home studio. <laughs> yeah, there's some really great ones too. Yeah, so many opportunities to like learn mm -hmm. from people hands-on, like one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah. But yeah, it is different from the studio vibe, but it's I think it's like in the state of today's world, maybe more valuable at times. So Yeah, yeah I, th I think so. I think I, I was all about getting my hands as dirty as possible. And I was able to do that with both of the guys that I worked with. And um, I mean, the, Pete, the second guy that I worked with, he was one of my favorite producers in high school. So that was, you know, a huge opportunity for me to be working with like one of my idols um, and, and awesome. seeing how he, you know, cuts big guitars and drums and things like that and, and kind of steal some of his ideas that I was then able, you know, years later to, to use myself. So I think that's, that was a great thing about being in that environment, whereas maybe the studio, you're not always seeing, I, I don't know, I don't know that, that area super well. I mean, I know that like the runners and things, they're usually not sitting in on my sessions, they're kind of staying away. So they're not really seeing like, some of the tricks that we're using and those kinds of things. So it, it was good to, to be in the heart of it all with, with uh, two guys I worked with. For anybody that's listening, if you're thinking about working in a big studio and you're not sneaking in in the middle of the night to like look at all the settings and like where the mics ended up, then you're doing it wrong. Because mm -hmm. that's like really the thing. Like if you're not in the room, go in there and like just see what people are doing. Yep. You, you might not get a chance to hear the music go down, but like, you know, start to wrap your head around that stuff. Oh, yeah. Let's talk production. Okay, Because I know that for a long time, you were doing a lot of production. You said when you came to Nashville, mm -hmm. you were focusing on production. That's why you wanted to work with these guys. But now you're kind of transitioning out. What was your production journey like and what led you to move into mixing exclusively? 
So first moving to town, I, I wanted to kind of be a jack of all trades. I wanted to produce the record. I wanted to engineer it. I wanted to mix it, maybe put some guitar on it. Uh, at, at the time, I was a big fan of a producer, John Shanks, doing like the Michelle Branch and Ashley Simpson. It was kind of top 40 at the time. It was a bit more pop rock, I guess. And um, so I wanted to kind of be like a John Shanks or maybe even a, you know, Dr. Luke or when, when or Max Martin, those were the kind of the guys I really looked up to, um, that were just control freaks. And, uh, who are all those people? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so that was kind of my goal, uh, back then. And, and, um, I wanted to, you know, be doing primarily pop stuff here in Nashville. And, um, and that lasted for many, many years. It's just really recently, just this past year that I've wanted to kind of try and transition and pull away from the production side of things and, and get a bit more specialized. And why, I, I guess there's a lot of reasons why. I mean, I still love production. I love like the creation side of things and the early on stages of, you know, brainstorming and coming up with some concept and a, and a vibe and all those things. But yeah, for me, I just, I started realizing, I think first and foremost, that I'm a better mixer than a producer. And that's kind of why I wanted to go all in. But I also enjoy just kind of working on something alone for a while and getting it the way I want it and moving through music, you know, a lot quicker production. Sometimes you're living with something for half a year. And uh, then next thing you know, like <laughs> you're making like $4 an hour on this project because you just spent so much time on it and it's, and it's been on your drive forever and, and you're at the mercy of everyone's schedules. And uh, it's just nice to I feel like as a mixer, you have so much more control over your schedule. You can work when you want. You don't have a lot of people come to your place all the time. And, and so there's a lot of reasons. But and, and also you can maybe, you know, do more mix work from anywhere, whereas production, you kind of have to, I feel like, be planted here in, in Nashville or L.A. where you've got the studios if you need them or the players if you need them or the gear and those kinds of things. So, yeah, just flexibility. And, and also just I think that I can contribute more there than anywhere else. And, and the market's kind of... I mean, more and more of my work that's coming in is just mix related. I think that's probably also because more and more people are self-producing maybe uh, as well. I agree with that. So yeah, it's, you know, I just love mixing more than anything. And I'd rather just do mixing all the time instead of half the time, I guess. So, um, I mean, what it, what it looked like was usually like half of my work was production work that I was also engineering and mixing. And then the other half was just mixing work. And uh, And so now I'm just trying to slowly transition out of that production and engineering mixing work just as strictly material that's ready to go. So if you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Yeah, you're making me think of, I just did an interview that'll come out, I think, before yours. But I was, so I was just chatting with uh, Andrew Lappin earlier this week. I don't know if you know Andrew, he's in Los Angeles. But he mixes all of his productions. And so I, we, we went back and forth on it for a minute. So I'm curious, since you were mixing your own productions, mm -hmm. how did you stay objective at the end of a production, especially on those ones that were like on the drive for a year? Because him and I had no answer. So if you have one, I'll be sure to let him know. Yeah, I, I don't know if I, I do either, but I do mix as I go. So I kind of feel like by the time that whatever, six months or a year has passed, I'm just maintaining this vision that I've somewhat have 
have been baking in the whole way. So yeah, I don't know if there is an answer to that, but I <laughs> I think it's just when I would get to that point, it would be like, okay, it, now it's just preserving what's there and just trying to make it a little bit better than than what it currently is. And it wasn't like, a, okay, now we're going to like pull up the faders and start a mix. It was already, there was already some automation in there and, you know, lots of, you know, very specific effects on things. And, and um, so I think by being a producer and a mixer, the two processes kind of happen simultaneously as opposed to production and mixing. So yeah, I guess my answer is just it, it, once it comes time to mix it, it was already somewhat mixed, even though I'd spend another <laughs> 15 hours probably on it or something, but just trying to pick at little things and get, you know, an extra 10th of a percent. But yeah, that's where we settled on. We were just like, yeah, it's hard. You just, it's just going to be what it is. I think when you are doing mixing as well as production and you know that now it's time to quote mix, I think it's like, mm-hmm. you just like want to change hats yeah, and then I think that's when you get in trouble. Is when you want to, man- it's you feel like it's mandatory to mm-hmm. change the hat to the mixing hat when you should probably just actually stay in your production, you know, mindset and just be like, all right, what does this need? Except we're not going to add parts. We're going to change frequencies. What does this not need? Yeah. But yeah, it's a tough one. I-, I feel for anybody making their own music, producers in their bedroom doing it from start to finish. It's hard. Feel your pain. Yeah, it definitely is. Especially if you haven't mixed very much, you know, just getting the translation and all those kinds of things to work is, is just takes a lot of experimentation for sure. Yeah. You mentioned that uh, at some point you realized that you felt like you were a better mixer than you were producer. Is there, mm-hmm. is there something that happened that made you feel that way? Or did you take some time to like really reflect on like your career at some point? Because that's tough when you get, you know, when you can say that about yourself. It's a powerful thing. I think just my clients were like kind of the ones that were were pointing it out without even saying anything. I think just getting more and more calls just for that. And I think that was part of it. And just, um, I don't know, just a lot of critical listening to my previous work going, this sounds great, but like someone else could have probably produced this even better than me, you know? But, you know, maybe it'd be a lot harder to find somebody that could get it to sound like this sonically. I think you just, I don't know. I think just experience and just time, it, it took me a while just to realize that. But um, I don't know if that answers your question. No, yeah, I, I think it, it kind of, well, just the fact that you were reflecting back on your work is yeah. kind of what I was curious about. You know, I feel like sometimes I don't do that enough, like go and like see where my weak points are. You just, you can get, you know, when you're busy, you just power through and you mm-hmm. probably could benefit from like taking a pause for a minute and being like, how was this? Did I really crush this? okay, no, I could have done better here. I could have done better. And it's a tough thing to right. do because nobody likes to be tough on themselves. You know what I mean? Oh, sure. It's like you want to feel like everything you did is perfect. But um, Right. No, that's that's hard to get to that place. Yeah. A random tangent, mix prep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you like to get files? That's a good question. I've been having that conversation actually with, with a lot of producers lately. I'm just trying to figure out how to remove friction uh, when it comes to, hey, let me get some files from you. Um, or if someone's sending me something to mix. And so I think there's a couple of challenges. First of all, the producers that I know here in town, there's probably five different DAWs between them all. Uh, I know some people are in Studio One, Pro Tools, Reason, Logic, Ableton. I mean, it's everything. So trying to figure out how to preserve what they've done and then get those files, that's always the challenge. I mean, in an ideal world, we're all in the same DAW with all the same plugins. That would be like my, my dream scenario. But that's not the case. And I'm actually another weirdo that's over in Cubase. I've been in Cubase and Nuendo for oh. you know, really just since the beginning of, of my career. So 
Um, so that makes it really challenging with the Pro Tools users. I mean, I have Pro Tools, um, but I prefer not to mix in Pro Tools. Because it's too awesome? I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Horrible joke. So uh, it, that's a tough question. I mean, most of the time it's getting just raw audio files, which isn't ideal. For, it's okay for maybe like a country record or something that's more organic, where it's just like, here's the drums, bass, and guitars, and keys, and a couple vocals, you know? And uh, we want you to have a lot of control. We don't really know what it needs, you know? Um, it works fine for that. But if it's a very hands-on pop producer that's already been you know, writing some intricate automation or has some very specific delay that they love, I want to make sure that, you know, I get that and it, already when it comes to me. And so I think what makes the most sense probably is stems for a lot of this. Like, it, it depend, once again, it depends on the kind of project. Yeah. It, but for a pop thing, stems are nice. Like, really detailed stems, I think, would be great where you're, you know, you're getting... Maybe it's like the kicks are all summed and the snares are summed and the hats are where I still have a lot of control, but you're able to like write you know, a lot of your plugin information into the audio files. And then I can kind of take it. Maybe I'm only able to take it 20 more percent from there. But I think that that's probably the best way to go. I mean, like I said, in an ideal world, we would all be whatever in Pro Tools and we'd all have the same 50 plugins. And it would, I could just open your project file and, and, and kind of start where you left off. And I know a lot of people are doing that. And some people are like, Hey, send me your Pro Tools project file. If I don't have the plugins, I'll buy the, all the ones that I still need. I'm kind of curious with you how, I mean, what are you primarily mixing Pro Tools project files? Is that what you're getting? Or are you getting just raw audio? Or Well, I've had to go both ways. Mm-hmm. I've had, you know, talking to somebody and telling them to send a Pro Tools session go all awry because then you get, you can really get an unfinished thing from somebody. Right, they're not committing to fades and yeah. Yeah, yeah. and you can really have to go in and like, actually do a lot of extra work to like reorganize it i've mm-hmm. also had sessions come in where like everything is frozen mm-hmm. in pro tools and i just kind of go through and i'm like okay i want to beat this i want to beat this i have these plugins so i'm going to unfreeze these i'm going to commit the rest of this stuff and those have been like really great but those are also people that deliver a lot more projects i find that like the more experienced a producer is or the more albums an artist is made mm-hmm. i feel like you're going to get at least I generally, still not always, generally feel like the files are better. And I'm I'm more open to saying, hey, send me a Pro Tools session. Mm-hmm. But I try, if I'm not sure how somebody works, I try to just get wet stems yeah. and just tell them like, give me totally dry vocals plus tuning if you're using any. Give me your wet vocals, no effects mm-hmm. as an option. Give me everything else, all your instruments wet. You know, like if you mm-hmm. have a long reverb on a snare, just leave it on for now. If I can't work with it, I'll hit you up and you can send me a drive. Yeah. And that definitely works a lot better because I'm more in the pop space. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. getting a lot of organic stuff, but I totally agree with you on the organic stuff because maybe it's just like an engineer self-righteous thing where like if you send me live drums, I'm, I believe that I will make them sound better. Maybe I should get over that. But uh, like if you've got live drums and it's an organic, like a jazz record or whatever, just take all your stuff off. Mm-hmm. If it's like a really processed like indie band that really has some like cool distortion stuff going on, like print that, I think. Yeah. So for me, it kind of varies project to project, but I just, I want to start where they left off. Sure. Yeah. That's the beauty of stems for me, I think. Yeah. And not having to worry about plugins recalling, like if they have some, like it's a wacky delay that I don't have and... Maybe it doesn't even work on my OS version, you know, all that. I just don't want to be kind of every project buying, you know, $200 of plugins and then 
trying to track them all down and things crashing and all that. So it's it's hard. Yeah. I mean, if the budget's there, it's like if it's a label project or something. and Sure, do whatever it takes. <laughs> you know, I, I know it's worth it for the, the 200 bucks to buy a couple yeah. plugins. It's going to yeah. be fine. I, I did want to say before you mentioned stems, I do like to get kicks and like snares separately because I do find most producers don't really pay attention to the transients on their kicks. All right, or phase issues. And if you got like three kicks and you might be able to like get a little bit more low end with the phase, but then also sometimes you do fix it and it's got like a tighter low end, but it loses that like dirty flub. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just like to know that I can move it if I can't, Mm -hmm. but who knows how many people have sent me, you know, printed kicks that I I don't know, but um, yeah. And people do also get really attached to what they've been hearing for a couple months and Sometimes it's good to kind of force them to commit it because then they're going to get something that sounds pretty familiar to them, only better. So that's, yeah, it's a tough call. And I also wonder, like, how big of a pain is it for these producers and artists to print these stems? Like, how much time is it taking them? Is there some way that I can make that easier on them? You know, I've been considering, like, does it make sense to do some type of remote desktop thing where I can kind of help them along the way to, or to where I could print the stems to make sure I get stems the way I want, you know, from their DAW without having to go to their place. Yeah. Those are kind of all the questions I've been asking myself lately. You know what I'm thinking about doing, uh, and everybody's going to steal this and probably do it before me. I, so I have a PDF that I send, but I'm thinking about making companion videos where like, if you have a question, you can click a link, it'll jump to like a Vimeo or something where it's like, Hey, Mm -hmm. here's how I would get your files out of logic and do like a two minute video for anybody that doesn't know what I'm yeah. talking about. They can just click the thing and watch it. I haven't had time to do that. So, you know, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. No, I did something similar to that many, many years ago with an online mixing service thing that I started up and had like actual, like a voiceover person do the voiceover, like a walkthrough of every DAW on kind of how to prepare your files and all that. Oh. It was a lot of work, but hopefully someone got something out of it. Fancy. Does it still exist? It does, but it's kind of just, I don't know. It's sitting there with the 2000 other online mixing services. Yeah, it's me and my brother-in-law. It's something we started up called matchlessmix.com many, many years ago. And it's it's brought in some work here and there, but there's just, I think you really have to be on top of it with SEO and kind of be on that first page of Google. And and there's a lot of a lot of competition and a lot of people willing to, to mix songs for $25, which I'm not interested in. So <laughs> What? Yeah, some people are, uh, are, you know, it's the price is what matters for, I think, a lot of people in that world. So it's, it's a tricky uh, side of, of the business and of kind of just, they're like, eh, I'd rather focus on doing, you know, the best stuff out there instead of just anything. Yeah, well, it's also, there's so much, there's so much related. I was having a conversation with the an entrepreneur type guy about just like marketing a business. There's so much related mm-hmm. to the brand. It's like, mm-hmm. if you have an online mixing service that it doesn't have your name on it, it's just like, hey, it's, it's very storefront-esque, right? There's like, there's mm-hmm. a clientele for that that's going to go and they're going to find that. But it's you're never going to pay a premium because it's not attached to anything. Yeah. And it's like, if people go to your website, they're like, oh yeah, I love this guy's work. I know this record. Mm-hmm. I want to work with this person. I'm going to pay the premium. It's like what the example that the guy used when I was ha- having a conversation was, it's like, think about like Apple or all these companies. Like when somebody puts a phone out, like you go see what the Samsung phone is and you go see what the Apple phone is because mm-hmm. those are the brands that have the the staying power and the recognition there are other sure. phones out there, I'm sure. I don't know what they are, but mm-hmm. all I know is those are the two phones. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? And I think it's the same way. Yeah, I always wanted to be like a sterling sound of mixing, you know? And I mean, it, my, my name and, and Eric's name were on the the site and you, you could actually like get to know us from some videos. And so it wasn't just like this. I mean, there's a lot of this just like mixedonline.com and you don't really know who's doing it. And we weren't right. interested in doing anything like that. Uh, we wanted okay. to be kind of more of the top tier kind of, you're going to pay a premium and you're going to get like a better product than if you were you know to pay whatever $25 for a mix or like right. a Fiverr style thing. So, but yeah, it's just only so many people I think were willing to pay the premium and it's just, I don't know. It was a lot of work. So we haven't really, it still exists, but it's been quiet, quieter there over the past few years than it has been. Yeah. Well, actually, my initial question when I said, does it still exist? I was actually referring to the mix prep video. So the mix prep video is still up there. Oh, those do too. Yeah. But you know, it's okay. going to be like old versions of Logic and old versions of Pro Tools. So there may be some things that have changed, but I mean, that stuff's all over YouTube. So anyone who needs to prep anything can just, I'm sure, type something on YouTube and get a better video than what we made. So I'm still going to watch yours. But it was nice to have it all like on our site. It was like custom with the branding and this girl's voice that was like sounded super cool that we knew. And I mean, we, we like typed up the script and everything. I mean, we really spent some time on it, but, uh, that's awesome. That's fun. Uh, so I got to ask you Cubase. Sure. I'm familiar in the fact that I've seen it. My buddy used it a bit. Mm -hmm. I've clicked around in it. What are some of the reasons that you love Cubase so much? And let's not count familiarity. So what are your hot things that you love in there? Well, I mean, now, if I was just getting started, I don't know if I would jump into Cubase. I think it is just I'm with it now because I've been with it for so long and I know it so well. But early on, the reason that I chose it was because at the time, Pro Tools was, it wasn't, I guess, native. It was, I think, only, I want to say, you know, TDM only. And uh, except for unless you, eventually, I think the 001 came out and then the inbox maybe after that. But in 2000, I think it's when I first got a version of New Window. It may or may not have been legal. I'm not for sure. Um, but uh, <laughs> that was like what an 18 year old kid living in Nashville. I needed something and it worked with my interface. And so it, it was cool because it was native even at the time. Um, and so that was probably why I started in the Steinberg yeah. platform. And then over the years transitioned to Cubase because it was cheaper to buy and it was only the things that I needed when it came to music. I didn't need all the post-production stuff that Nuendo offers. And that's been since like version four, I think. And Cubase is now version 12, I believe. So, Oh, nice. Yeah, you know, for me, it felt like uh, Cubase and Nuendo were always like a step ahead of Pro Tools. There was, I feel like even like clip gain and things like that, that was something that took forever for Pro Tools to do. And, yeah. it, you know, Cubase and Nuendo had been doing it forever. And I'm trying to think of some other things that it allowed. Like Once again, just being able to use any hardware with it was pretty great. But uh yeah, I don't know. The, and like even custom key commands and macros and all that always felt like that kind of stuff was ahead of the curve. And yeah. implementing this control room section in the program is really great. If you want like a control room monitoring section, you can kind of build that out. And That's uh, cool. just, I don't know, it's it's always, it's that German engineering thing. It's just really well engineered and <laughs> it's been reliable. You know, at first I started on a PC with it. Maybe that was another reason. I guess Pro Tools worked with on PCs back then as well, but I think it was, you know, more of a Mac thing like it's always been. Yeah. So that may have been part of it too, is I was able to use it on my PC. But yeah, and, and now I just, I just use it because I can, you know, do pretty much anything in my sleep just because I've spent, uh, I guess, 22 years now using it. So it's, it's just uh, an extension of my body now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I do agree that they are definitely ahead of the curb. Uh, on Pro Tools at times, and it's yeah kind of frustrating. The thing that really 
caught me when when I was messing with it is their stem export mm-hmm. and their bouncing was really really seemed super elaborate compared to Pro Tools. Yeah. And now Ableton has similar things where it's like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you can have things hit the master, not hit the master. You can print effects together, not a, like it's very, yeah, very deep in and in, in the stemming world. Yeah, they have the batch export kind of feature, and you can yeah really get in there. And then I've even I've been able to kind of take it to the next level of some macros and things where I use a lot of folders and put things in folders. And if I want stems, I want to be able to solo the folder, so it also solos all the effects returns and all that. So I've I found a way to kind of where I can you know, hit one key command and then it does like 14 stems while I'm having dinner or whatever. So that's it's kind of the free version of, I know there's a couple of things out there, like Sheps has his, what are those? There's one called Studio Butler or... Yeah, Bounce Butler and 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 Sheps's Bounce Factory. It's kind of, kind of the same thing, but you get a lot of those features just automatically built in, which is nice. So you were able to build a macro like that within Cubase without using Soundflow, without using Keyboard Maestro, no extra software. Correct. Yep. Yep. Okay. Avid, take note if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. You know, I recently uh, had to log into a computer remotely uh, to kind of improve a broadcast mix for a friend. And they were using Studio One from uh, Personas. And I thought it was kind of comparable. To, it reminded me a lot of Cubase. I, I kind of okay. liked it. It was, it was nice. I don't know if you messed with that before, but uh, it was the first time and I felt like I was able to kind of jump in and, and just start working. Whereas Pro Tools, I was on it a couple of weeks ago for a few days and my whole world was turned around and I was hitting key commands that weren't doing anything. <laughs> yeah, and then, yeah, and then I came back and now, and then I started doing Pro Tools key commands and those weren't working in Cubase. And it's like, man, can't we all just get along and do this? Everyone have the same DAW with the same key commands and it's never going to happen. But. I know. Well, at least make the key commands, you know, interchangeable. I think Pro Tools is like the yeah. last one where you can't like do custom, custom key commands. But yeah, I, I didn't realize that until a few months ago. And I was like, really? Okay. I think there's some workarounds or maybe some third-party applications that can help you with that. But yeah, it's, it was frustrating for me. Us Pro Tools users, we are, we are committed for life. Yeah. And we have support groups for our complaints. There is one time where I wish I was a Pro Tools user, and that's when I go to commercial studios to track, you know, like do drum overdubs or record a band. It's like, okay, well... I don't want to bring in a rig, you know, with conversion and all that. It's going to be a pain. So usually the best approach is just to hire a second that tape ops. And then at the end of the session gives me like, I can take all the Pro Tools project files in case I need to open them up in my world, but just do a bounce down like the last playlist or the kind of everything that's up when we close everything down and then I'll import those in a new project file. So that's, that's kind of a pain. Uh, there's a few studios that have allowed me to install Cubase on their computers and and uh, then I can just bring a drive, which is way nice. That's nice. But uh, yeah, so that's really the one time that I wish, or, or I guess if someone sends me some, or like they're wanting me to mix from their Pro Tools project file, then, um, then that's the other time I guess I would need to do it. But uh, yeah, most of the time, like 99%, I'm in Cubase and very happy in it. That's cool. See, see everybody, records can be made anywhere. Cubase. Yep. Nuendo. Even on Tascam hard disk recorder. Tascam hard disk recorders. <laughs> iPhones, GarageBand. Yeah. Doesn't matter. As long as the music's good, people will like it. Cassette deck. I recommend against the cassette deck, but yep. go for it. So I wanted to ask two questions on our way to our final two questions. Okay. So that's four questions. I was reading an interview that you did with somebody else. I'm not sure when, but you mentioned that like one of the key traits that you think has shaped your career or been super valuable for you is uh, persistence. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
I completely agree. I feel like the music industry is a long game. Mm -hmm. A lot of people get in here thinking they're going to like be famous or be rich before they're like 22. And that's just not the way that it's going to happen Yeah, for 99.99999% of people. So I'm just curious, um, would you like to elaborate on that? Have you ever second guessed what you were doing? Like, Oh yeah. Like I said, I mean, I, I think I went, we did the independent thing starting in around 2003. So it's, it's close to 20 years now of being my own boss and <laughs> knowing that if I don't have a paycheck, then it's all on me. Uh, and that's been scary for sure over the years. Um, it's, yeah. it's, it has compounded uh, slowly, but there's been some, you know, there's been some peaks and there's been some valleys as well. And there has been times where it's like, you know, maybe um, this slow patch is going to last for two years. Like, okay, well, what am I going to do about that? You know, do I, you know, choose a different career path? You know, something that's a little more consistent, especially when, you know, you start having getting married and having kids and all those kinds of things and other people are counting on you too. Um, yeah, it is something that, you know, you think about luckily for a while now I've been pretty busy, so I don't get as stressed out as I used to, but I do know that my mood would constantly <laughs> change depending on how busy I was uh, or how not busy I was. But, um, you know, I've had lots of interns over the years and, uh, it's something that, you know, we talk about quite often and it is, I mean, if, if you want to do this, you've got to be prepared to just stick with it no matter how rough it gets because it, and it will, but you, you know, if, whether that means taking a side gig, doing something else or, you know, diversifying and kind of getting some, maybe some, picking up some new talents as well. Maybe you're not good at tuning and maybe you get some melodyning gigs or some whatever drum editing gigs or, I don't know what those may be, but, but yeah, it is, uh, it's something that you've got to stick with. It's not going to be like overnight. I remember some of the people that I went to school with at, at SAE, they thought, you know, it was just, you go to school and then all of a sudden, like you're making like beats for Dre or something like that. And I was like, no, that's, that's not how it's going to go. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if that's really much, uh, of an elaboration, but that's, that is something that's super important. And, and I, you know, tell everyone that it's just, you can't give up. It's, it's gotta be some, if you want it bad enough, there can't be a plan B and, and, you know, you'll eventually come out on the other side of it. Yeah. There's an aspect of this industry. That's like, it's almost like last man standing, last woman standing. Mm -hmm. You're just like, all right, now I have all the work I could ever dream of because now I'm 22 years in, 25 years yeah. in, 30 years in, I'm still doing it. You know, it's like, it mm -hmm. takes a long time to win trust over from all the people that you need to win trust over from to, yeah. to stay busy, you know, six days, five days a week, however, however many days you want to work. Yeah, you're just developing more and more relationships and building your book out, you know, over the yep. years. That's it's just like someone who cuts hair or, or something like that. That's kind of what I think of it as it's, and so the longer you're in the game, the more people you're meeting, the more clients that are coming in and then you're doing your best to retain those clients. And then, you know, for albums two, three, and four, I mean, I just got, I worked last week with someone I've worked with for 15 years. Um, you know, I've produced Amazing. his like three records that his band did. And now, uh, he's kind of producing some stuff on his own. And it's like, Hey, I want to, you know, I want you to help me like get the sounds on this. And so I want you to mix it. So, I mean, it's just the more of those relationships you build, the more, it's, like I said, it starts to compound and, and you just got to stick with it while you're building those relationships and kind of slowly growing. So, Yep. I married a hairstylist. And, uh, oh, okay. Yeah. It's very similar. Yeah, it's very similar. Like, uh, just, yeah, you just have to keep building and building and doing it and doing it and doing it and mm -hmm. keep, keep everybody happy. They keep coming back. Something else I wanted to talk about before we, we go is uh, you, you brought it up on Ben's show and it's something that I, I've kind of participated in it as well. You mentioned that at some point you started working with an accountability coach, I guess would be the best term. Yeah, yeah, that's what I call him. 
basically started working with someone to hold yourself accountable later in your career. And I'm just curious what what brought you to that decision and then like ultimately would, would you get out of it? Would you recommend it to people? What are your thoughts on it? Because I'm, I'm a big fan of stuff like that. Yeah, it's been great for me. It's something I started the first of the year. You know, I had I set some big goals at the beginning of the year, that, some things I really wanted to get done. And, you know, I talked about this a little bit on on uh, Secret Sonics as well. It's, I, I know myself and I know that when I sign up for something, whether that's a marathon or to just, you know, climb a mountain, like there's these things that I always want to accomplish outside of my career. Um, and I always... I always do them. I always, it's either buying a plane ticket to go do something somewhere or like I said, paying money down for a race or something like that. Um, so I always would follow through and I never really, I wanted something that was comparable on the career side of things. And so I, I just kind of thought about it for a while and I thought I, that a, having a coach, accountability coach would be kind of the equivalent in a way of that as just someone that's checking in on me. Because I know that if I have like this place that I want to go, I'm disciplined enough to stick with it. I just need like... <laughs> someone to kind of help me kind of track some of my progress and just that will push me a little bit if I am getting behind a bit. So, yeah, you know, so I just started looking around and I was like, yeah, I don't want to like spend a ton of money on this if I don't have to. And I, I did a little digging on Fiverr, believe it or not, uh, and found this guy, Mohammed, who is in London. He kind of does accountability in a way at the university he works at. He, it's some way of just, I guess, working with the employees there at the university. He, uh, he's got some certifications and things, but really great guy. And um, so I, I found him and you, you can just like book three hours worth of time with him. And we broke it down into 30 minute sessions and it ended up being like just super, super cheap when you really did the math. And so we started, it was probably, I guess, beginning of the year, Feb, or maybe January, February, something like that. And um, at first we started meeting uh, every every week, just on a Saturday morning or Sunday morning. And um, I just was like, hey, here's what I want to accomplish. Here's kind of my plan. Can, like, can you just make sure that I follow through? He, he's not, he's like a gentle guy. He's not like super like drill <laughs> sergeant, which sometimes I've maybe wished that he was. But, and so I just built this, like, I was like, okay, what do I want to accomplish? I kind of had to figure out what I wanted him to help me with before I, we had our, our, kind of our initial right. call just to get and get to know each other. And then I'm like, okay, now I've got to get a game plan together. And that's when I built this, what I call my like, to-do list template or whatever. It's just a big page of like my weekly goals, my monthly goals, my yearly goals, kind of the tasks that I need to accomplish. And, and so he, I, it's basically at the end of every week, um, it was just, I did all these things. Here's where I, you know, was kind of falling behind, talked about what can we do to, to make sure that this week it's better. And then now it's at a place where maybe we, we just talk every two, three, four weeks. It's not as like consistent just because I'm kind of in my groove now and yeah. and know that most of these things kind of have become habitual. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I can't recommend it enough. It's been really great for me um, just to kind of, and it's not just career-based, but we've talked a lot about how, because at first I came in, like I wanted, I had all these career goals and it was like, well, we want to be more well-balanced. You know, we want to make sure that, you know, you can't like, tackle these big things if you're not getting enough sleep or if you're not exercising very much or those kinds of things. And so it was more of a holistic approach of like, okay, like going to run three times every week. I'm going to go to the climbing gym one night a week. I'm going to go to bed at this time. I'm going to wake up this time. I'm going to read Monday through Friday at lunch. And there's all these like go on a date once a month with my wife and spend this many hours with my family on the weekends. And all of these things are a part of this, this to-do list. And, and so by kind of being really well-rounded, it actually makes me, I feel like, more productive and stronger um, when I'm in the, in the studio. So, yeah, it's kind of a long answer, but, you know, it, I think it's been really great for me. And I'm in a place now where it's like, I'm not as interested in spending money on gear or plugins. It's more of like investing in growth in my business and 
and building relationships with other people, taking people out to lunch and coffee. And, and that's where I'm at more really than trying to, like I said, buy more gear. It's, it's more about like becoming, a, you know, better at what I'm doing and, and, you know, building new relationships. Yeah. I totally respect that. Cause I, like I've worked with coaches in the past and, and like you said, they're not like drill sergeant-y, but there's something about like just sitting there and talking to somebody and then being like, so did you do the thing that you were going to do? And then you have to look them in the face and be like, no, I didn't do it. Yep. Don't want to disappoint them. And then like that in itself is like almost enough yeah. where you can just like, you could probably call it right there and then just go like in the hallway and, and cry a little bit. But it is, it's funny because, you know, we meet so many deadlines. It's like, you know, like if you know mm -hmm. you need to start tracking at 10 a.m., like you make sure it's set up and the band's ready to go. You need to deliver a mix or you need to make a mastering deadline. Everybody in this industry can do that because we, mm -hmm. for the most part, we do it every day. But then when it comes to these other things like growth or making space for exercise or making space for balance, mm -hmm. all of a sudden this like, diehard music industry like i will make the deadline no matter what mm -hmm. all of a sudden that shit just goes out the window and you're like date night yeah let's do it like december how's december i'm really busy right now and it's just really yeah i don't want to say it's not unfortunate there's something about like the hustle mentality of the industry but i don't know it's just uh like i said i i like that you did that and you know i have experienced value from doing it myself so yeah yeah, and I think someone can implement this in their lives without even spending any money. I think you could find a good friend and be like, hey, can you just call me once every two weeks and ask if I did like everything on this? I, I, I recommend like make a template of the things you want to get done every day, every week, every month, every, and then the, throughout the year and just have someone, it could even maybe be a family member or something along those lines just to check in and, and hold you accountable because you don't even necessarily need like someone who's quote unquote an actual accountability coach. I don't think it's just no. someone that you don't want to disappoint. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the act of either being accountable or not being accountable. Yeah. If, mm -hmm. if you've got like a friend that likes to give you a hard time or you got like a crazy uncle or, yeah. you know, significant others are great because, you know, they're, they're very honest. I think, yeah, spending a little money on it probably doesn't hurt though. It probably, you'd yeah. probably take it even a little more seriously, I think. Yeah. Yes, yeah. As soon as, as soon as something costs money, it's, uh, you know, it has that. But uh, anyway, I encourage a lot of people to, you know, if you, if you feel like you're just not making progress, maybe consider something like that. And like Brent said, even if it's just your friend. Yeah. But it's got to be a good friend who will give you a hard time. Yeah. Like the same kind of person that'll give you good feedback on your music. Not the one that's like, I love this song every time. That's not the friend for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dude, this has been a really great hang. I do want to ask because yeah. I, I forget to do this in the podcast and I know people want more of it. Mm -hmm. Do you got like a like a cool mixtape, a favorite plug-in, like anything random uh, that you can share with people? Yeah. Um, mixtape. Oh, there's lots of those. You know, one thing that uh, I encourage a lot of people to do, I feel like a lot of us work really visually, um, like too visual um, at times. And so I think anytime you can... And I have a couple of reels that I've kind of put out on my Instagram, uh, if you want to check them out, that kind of talk about this, because it's something that I struggle with as well. But one, one tip that I love uh, that I use all the time is, let's say I'm EQing something with a Pro-Q3 that I think is better, or maybe it's like I'm looking at the spectrum, it's like, oh, there's a dip, whatever, at 232. Let me like add 2 dB of 232 to make it nice and even, you know? Or a flat, straight line, you know? Those kinds of things, uh, which are usually are not always a good idea, I think if you turn auto gain on and then you make that move and then I'm all about doing the like blind kind of AB thing. That's something that's huge for me that I think a lot of people should experiment with. But 
just kind of closing your eyes, hitting the bypass button a million times on and off until you don't know if it's on or off. Yep. And then just decide, you know, because lots of times we think, oh, we're this line is prettier now, so it's going to be better. And most of the time you'll pick, you'll end up picking like the one, you know, without any EQ, like the way that you actually, you know, mix the song. Like you, <laughs> there's a reason that that's there, it like sounded good to you, you know, as opposed to, you know, working visually. So using auto gain, things like that are really good too, to where yeah. you're not just picking things because they're louder. So trying to trying to eliminate some of that, I think is is a really good thing. Maybe listening back with your display off. Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, that's helpful too, I think. Just, I don't know, our eyes can play tricks on us. And it's, yeah. it's something that I still struggle with at times. And I think most other people do too. So that would be just something that comes to mind is try to take your eyes out of the equation as much as you can. Yeah. I was looking at your Instagram this morning. I think your studio is kind of similar to mine. I've got my monitor lower and tilted back. So like when I just look up, mm-hmm. I'm looking between the speakers. I'm not seeing Pro Tools like I used to. And okay. that's been really nice. I just feel like I just don't look at the screen as much now. Like when it's time to listen, I just... So your display's to one side or... No, no, it's sorry. It's down in front of me. Oh, okay. So I'm looking down okay. at Pro Tools, which ergonomically oh, may not nice. be ideal. And when I go straight up, it's just like speaker field. I like that. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen a few people with similar setup and I was like, I really like that, that vibe of just like almost like a mastering room. It's like, I just want the speakers mm-hmm. there and it's not a lot of reflections around here. But um, anyway, we digress. There are two questions that I have to ask you in order for this to be a progressions episode. I think you know what they are. They're good ones. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And so the first one is, uh, was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? Yeah, I think for me, success, my definition of success has changed at different times in my life. I think early on, success for me was trying to become the next John Shanks or the next Dr. Luke or Max Martin, you know. And then, you know, you get married and you have kids and they're like, man, maybe success really is just, you know, being able to support my family and get to do audio, you know, for a living. I mean, that's that's great, you know. And so I think that was like kind of phase two for me is that's what success was. And, And now I'm feel like in a third phase, which is, you know, things are kind of just consistent for the most part and, you know, family's good and like work's good. And now it's almost like I'm wanting to come back to that phase one a bit more and work on bigger and better projects every single year and and work on, uh, maybe it's not be the next Dr. Luke or the next Max Martin, but maybe it's the next Servan or Chad Blake or, you know, those guys that I love. And so trying to just, you know, be that next generation that comes in and, and mixes records at that level and once once they start to retire so that's kind of i think my three phases of what success looks like for me so i love that well there is something to like building stability and understanding balance and like settling into a family when then all of a sudden you're like okay now that i understand how to be a good family member now i can go back to putting in the crazy push that i had when i was a kid Mm because i kind of feel the same way it's like i want to get to this place where like everything is fine everything's comfortable everything is safe Mm -hmm. family's good balance is good everybody's happy and then you know then it's like okay so now how do we push past that and that's a feat in itself i mean there's so many people that never accomplish that and unfortunately may not have the best family relationships because of it but Mm -hmm. that's their passion their passion is 100 percent, 18 hours a day yeah i respect that as well so yeah Yeah, I love that answer. Good answer. Uh, Last question. What is your current biggest goal and what is the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it? Yeah, so like I said earlier on, I I do have quite a few goals. Uh, The biggest one for this year that is kind of like the one that's always in my face that's super important to me is it's very specific. It's, It's to mix a song for a producer who has a track 
on either the Pop Rising Spotify playlist or Fresh Finds Pop. So basically my goal is before the end of the year to have mixed a song for someone who's produced a song that hits one of those two playlists this year, if that makes sense. And so um, there's kind of been two things that have to happen, or at least in my head, two things that I need to do to make that happen. One is to just extract a lot of data, pulling in lots of credits as to who are the one, people that are producing these songs. How do I get a hold of them? They have management or their emails, you know, kind of DM them on Instagram and just kind of keeping track of, I've got about 120 names now of people that I've been trying to either connect with or I have connected with, or I've already taken them to lunch or coffee. And so, like I said earlier, like for me, I'm in this phase where I'm building a lot of new relationships with the people making the kind of music that I want to be working on. And so that's like my big goal. And that's where I'm at right now. That's why I'm coming out to LA next month to meet a lot of these people I've been talking with over the interwebs. And so if you're uh, producing music on those playlists, let's find a way to, you know, collaborate on something so I can hit my goal by the end of the year. That's right. We got six months to go, people. Let's go hit up Brent. Yep. That's that's awesome. There's uh, there's so much great music on those two playlists. Those are actually two of my favorites. And like, also, I feel like the music that I enjoy working on the most. And those, those are always the best projects. Yeah. Is it's like the stuff that you want to listen to already. Yeah. It doesn't matter how, like you could be Manny and you could be mixing however many songs he mixes per day, per week. But I mean, even he probably can't say he loves them all. And it's like, if you're the guy that is mixing just the shit you like, mm -hmm. that'd be the best. That'd be better than yeah. being Manny, better than being <laughs> Serban. You don't even need to win yeah. Grammys. You're just like, God damn, this music's great. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I think that's a great goal. And I love everybody listening should take note how specific that goal is. That is damn specific. Yeah, that was for me. It's like, what, I want a very specific goal and like, and then I can kind of start to engineer like my way into it, you know, how to get there. And, and uh, like I said, I'm spending more money on taking people out to, to coffee and flying to LA and getting an Airbnb. And, and that's like where I'm putting my money, not into gear. Cause yeah. I've got, you know, the basics, I've got all I need to, to make a great sounding record. Now it's just like, I need to get my hands on the kind of music that I want to be working on. So. Yeah. You can't really take action on goals that aren't specific like that. Like yeah. you can't just say, I want to mix a number one song this year, or yeah. I want to get something on the billboard mm -hmm. chart. It's not attainable. Yeah. It can happen, but you can't break that down and understand that you need to go to LA, that you need to take these people right. out to lunch. Like you can make actionable mm -hmm. tasks out of that. So I think that's amazing. Yeah. It's great to be able to monitor it and kind of have it all, all the information. And yeah, it's been good so far. That's awesome. I love that. Mm -hmm. That's a great way to go out. This has been so much fun. We'll chat some more after I hit stop, but please share with people your website, whatever you want to share, go for it. This is your spot. Yeah. Um, my website's brenthendrich.com. That's H-E-N-D-R-I-C-H. I spend most of my time on Instagram. That's just Brent Hendrich. And I share a new reel every two weeks. There's a lot of mixed tips and I guess it's primarily what they are. So if you know you want to keep up with some of the stuff I'm trying to share, then you can check that on Instagram. And then if you're in Nashville, I have a um, summing mixer. It's a, a monthly mixer we meet uh, on the last Tuesday of every month. So anyone who's a producer, engineer, composer, session musician, we hang out. I provide coffee and we have a nice big table. So come join us. Uh, that's at Humphrey Street the last Tuesday um, from 9 to 11 a.m. And then, uh, yeah, I'm going to be in LA next month. So if you're making records in LA and want to connect while I'm out there, then let me know and I'll buy you a cup of coffee too. Amazing. That's awesome. Yep. I'll let you get back to your day, but we're meeting up when you come out here. So we'll talk again then. Yeah. Can't wait. See the studio. Yeah. Likewise.
So that's it for episode 75. Thanks to Brent Hendricks for coming on the show. Thanks to Stephen Boyd for editing this episode. Also, obviously, thanks to all of you for listening. And if you've been enjoying the show, please consider leaving a review over on Apple Podcasts. If you listen to this episode on YouTube, please drop a comment. Let us know what your favorite part was. Also, don't forget there are other ways to support the show via Patreon or various affiliate links. Any support, no matter how big or small, is greatly appreciated. And also remember to join us over on the Complete Producer Network and get in all the great conversations going on over there. So I will see y'all next time.